0: Good morning. Good morning. I feel it too. We lost, we lost an hour and I overslept. So the finishing touches on this sermon are going to take a, take a full-on nosedive. So <laughs> welcome to Redeemer Rockwall. My name is Zach and if you're a guest with us today, we are really glad that you've joined us. But perhaps after hearing that sermon passage, you are not. Oh, great. A sermon on anger. Well, I promise you it'll be short. We only preach for two hours here at Redeemer. <laughs> but in all seriousness, you know, regardless of what your story is, if you're here with us today or why you came today, what you're going through, we are glad that you were here. And you never know, maybe you're here because Jesus is doing something new. In your life. This is our third week in our new series in the Sermon on the Mount. And in today's passage, Jesus begins a section of teaching where he now begins to focus on the practical realities of life anger, lust, marriage, revenge, your neighbor. This is where Jesus starts to get really personal. He's going to knock on the door of all of those private spaces in your life where you, you think no one's watching. No one can see or find out. Or you think that things just aren't a big deal. So the question is, as we move forward, are you going to let him in? Because he's going to challenge you. And what you think it means to follow after him. And we should also address just up front two misconceptions about what we're reading in this section that we are moving into. And the first is that if you, you know, you read too quickly through the Sermon on the Mount, then when you get to this passage, you might think that Jesus is now changing the subject and he's starting on a new topic. As though, you know, he's saying, well... You know, that covers the Beatitudes. Now let's switch gears and let's talk about anger. But that's not what he's doing. He's actually taking everything that he said thus far, and now he's starting to apply it to our lives. He's saying, this is what everything I'm telling you actually looks like in real life. But secondly, you might also read this and just think it's, just moralistic pietism. Like Jesus is just worried about everyone's behavior. And just making sure that we're all just good little boys and little girls. As though he's just saying, nah, ah, ah, don't get angry. Christians don't get angry. We don't ever lose our temper. And don't lust. Why? Because Christians never ever think about sex. But that's not what Jesus is doing either. He's not giving you rules to turn your life into some flat, two-dimensional existence so that nobody has any fun. It's actually the complete opposite. He's actually teaching you how to thrive. He's teaching you how to flourish. He's teaching you what wholeness really looks like. Let me put it another way. He's teaching you how to find the life that you're really looking for. So will you let him in? So to understand our passage this morning, I want to connect it with what we've already covered the last two weeks. Because what Jesus says in the previous two weeks and what we covered is so different to us that we can so quickly move on. And if we do that, then we end up making one of those two mistakes. And so we have to stay rooted in Jesus's terms And understand why he's teaching what he is so we have to stay connected with what we've covered the last two weeks to give us that framework and I want to do that by approaching it from a different angle I want to start by telling you about a place it is a place that is beyond your wildest imaginations and most vivid dreams It's like a fairy tale, except this place is the fairy tale that's true. It's a place that's ageless. It's untouched by time and decay. It's a place without any worry or any pain. There's no anxiety. There's no fear of what might be coming around the corner because there you know that there's nothing that can hurt you. It's a place of such profound, breathless beauty, filled with a light that shines deep into your soul, where every single breath feels like the ecstasy that every drug addict chases. And buried deep in your mind is the absolute, hard as granite, concrete certainty that it will never end, and it won't ever be taken away. It's a place of justice, equity, goodness, joy unending, profound peace, and where the law is perfect love. This place is the paradise of God. It's the kingdom of heaven. And at the very center of that kingdom is a king. Who sits on a throne. And that king is life and goodness itself. Friends, this place is not a metaphor. It's not poetic language used to describe some sort of abstraction. It's a place that's more real than you could ever know. And Paul tells us it's better than you could ever comprehend. And the foundation of the gospel, the bedrock, foundation of the gospel... Is that this king stepped off of his throne, left his kingdom of life, and entered into this world of death. That's exactly how the gospel of Mark wants you to understand the gospel from the very beginning. This is exactly how he introduces Jesus and his ministry to us. Because in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus begins his ministry... He says that the very first thing that Jesus began to preach was the very gospel itself, the very gospel of God, which was this, to repent, for the time had finally come, and the kingdom of heaven was now at hand. Mark is telling us the good news of the gospel in its most foundational form, that the kingdom of God That kingdom is now breaking into this world because God the king had entered into this world in flesh and blood. And that shapes how we understand Jesus. It shapes how we understand everything he does, everything he teaches, and how we understand his ministry where he's inviting his people to enter into this kingdom, his kingdom that's invading this world, to repent and to believe and to pass from death into life in the here and now. And when that happens, you are no longer a citizen of this world. You now are a citizen of his world. It's an invitation to come and follow after this king and live as citizens of his kingdom. But what does that mean? What does that even look like? Well, that's discipleship. Where Jesus teaches us what it means to live as his people who are shaped by the values of his kingdom. It's why in the Gospels, Jesus is always saying the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, because he's telling us and teaching us and showing us what it means to live as citizens of his world, not this world. And this is what undergirds all of Jesus's teaching, and it's the very foundation of the Sermon on the Mount, which is why Jesus Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount can be so strange and confusing and difficult because he's literally teaching us the values of another world that don't make sense in this world. That's why Mark said in the opening sermon in the Beatitudes, that in those Beatitudes Jesus is turning the values of this world upside down. That's why Shainer said last week that if the Sermon on the Mount makes you feel unsettled and uncomfortable, it's probably because you actually are hearing what Jesus is saying to you. Because Jesus is redefining the good life. And it goes against everything that we believe about this world. So, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, not the mighty. Not the powerful and not the proud. Why? Because they cannot stop this kingdom that's coming for them. And it will take this world from them. Blessed are those who mourn. Not remember to mourn so that God will then bless you. He's going to get you a new car. No. Blessing is the mourning. Mourning is the blessing. And I know some of you are mourning. And blessed are you. Blessed are you. Why? Because you're not living under the illusion that everything is just fine. Your morning reminds you that this world is not okay. Otherwise, you just go back to sleep. Living as though there's nothing in this world that we need to be rescued from. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the poor the peacemakers, and the persecuted. None of those, none of those words are ones that we would actually ever use to describe the good life. But Jesus does. Because in those moments, you are not living by the values and the systems of this world. You are living by the values and the systems of the world to come. And life is not ever comfortably situated in death. Jesus is saying, this is what life does in a world that's filled with death. And then Jesus says, you are salt and light. When you live this way, you give flavor to this drab and dark world. You give people a taste that there's something more to life, that this world is not all that there is. You're a light that helps people see what they can't see, that another world is breaking into this one, and that there really is another king and another kingdom. So in our passage today, Jesus isn't changing the subject or starting a new topic. He's teaching us what it means to live as his people, as his citizens, to live by the values of his kingdom, and he's starting to apply everything that he said into those nitty-gritty spaces of life. He's teaching you how to live out a whole new identity. And so, of course, when Jesus speaks this way and he taught this way, nobody would ever heard anything like it. Jesus wasn't like any other rabbi. And so naturally, whenever people listened to him, they thought he was teaching something different from everything that they were taught from the Old Testament. Oh, well, Jesus is teaching something new. In verse 17, Jesus says, no. Just because I said all this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I've come to fulfill them. In fact, everything that I am doing... Everything that I am teaching is about seeing every single detail of the law accomplished and fulfilled. And then Jesus says something that would have made everyone's jaw hit the floor. He says, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, then you need a righteousness that far exceeds even that of the scribes and Pharisees. Okay. Well, now there's murmurs among the crowds. This would have been unthinkable for these people because the scribes and the Pharisees were considered the most righteous of all. They followed the law with such precision and such detail that, quite frankly, it was unattainable for the common man. It was a full-time job itself. And the Pharisees were seen as the pinnacle of religious virtue and the standard of a life of devotion unto God. But Jesus says, actually, no. Not at all. They're not even close. If you really want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, then you need a righteousness that far exceeds theirs. Now, follow me into the weeds for a second. You're like, man, we're already in the weeds. Okay, well, go with me a little bit further. We don't use that word righteousness very often in our modern language. We understand the concept naturally, but we don't use it and we don't think about it the way an ancient Israelite would. When God gave Israel those laws, all those laws that Jesus is talking about, God gave all of those laws because he wanted to make Israel a people that reflected his character. So that when the world looked at Israel, they would see how they lived and behaved and acted and treated one another. And they would say, man, who is your God? Tell me about all of that. I've never seen that. That tastes good. I see a light. That was the purpose. And all of those laws, those hundreds and hundreds of laws, could all be summed up very simply with two commands. Love God. And love your neighbor. That was the very heart of the law. That was the governing principle of every situation and every moment in life. Those were the two laws that all of the other laws were built on. Love God, love neighbor. So the law was not just some long list of rules that God gave his people because God is actually type A and he really loves rules. Now those two great commands tell us that there's a heart underneath what God tells his people to do. God wanted to shape their entire posture towards him and towards the world around them. And so righteousness, the type of righteousness that Jesus is talking about, the type of righteousness that we need, is living in a way that's aligned with the character of God. That's what we need in every moment, in every situation where your life is aligned with the character of God and you become salt and light to the surrounding world. It is not just a list of rules. So whenever Jesus says this about the Pharisees, he's saying they aren't actually aligned with the character of God at all. You just think they are. When you look at them, you actually do not get a picture of what God is actually like. Which is evidenced by the fact that when God actually shows up with them face to face, they kill them. Because in reality, they hated the character of God. Jesus says, don't look at them because that's not what God is like. Look at me. Because the Pharisees were caught up in external religion where they, yeah, they followed all of the laws with incredible precision. But they failed to grasp the deeper heart of the law in every situation, every moment, and every circumstances, that beautiful heart of the law that is love of God and love of neighbors. So they would glory that they followed everything perfectly. They didn't murder, didn't commit adultery, yet they ignored their neighbor in need And they heaped judgment on everybody. Sure, they tithed all the way down to their spice rack. But they ignored the poor and they swallowed up widows' houses. So sure, they followed all the rules. While completely disregarding the two greatest commands of all. Love your God and love your neighbor. So Jesus is saying, I have come to show you the full heart of the law in all of its beauty. I've come to show you the life that is pleasing to God so that your life might be aligned with the very character and nature and heart of God so that you might live as a citizen of his kingdom in this world so that you would thrive and flourish the way that God wants for you. That is a lot. So let's pause for a second. What does all this mean for you? Like just up to this point? I think it challenges us in two ways. Two types of people. Two types of thinking. One, are you a rule follower? You love rules. And doing them makes you feel confident. And that maybe God would be pleased with you and... Doing those rules will make sure that he's not mad at you. But are you really displaying his character? In fact, maybe all you're doing is just following the rules. And it's not really about aligning your life with the character of God. You follow the rules because you're afraid you're going to be crushed by God if you don't. So following these rules is just about appeasing him. But, friend, you need a far greater righteousness. And secondly, it challenges the mindset that I think has become so common in our pampered day. It's that Jesus doesn't really require anything of you. So you don't really think about following the rules at all. Where his grace just means that he overlooks what we do and how we live. And he has no expectations of us. All of his teaching are really just suggestions. He's only there to comfort us and tell us we're forgiven. It's okay. He's taken care of everything for us. And nothing really needs to change in our lives. But friends, that just means we aren't following Jesus. That just means Jesus is following us. Just simply there to tell us everything is okay, to pamper us. And friend, if you think that you aren't supposed to fall, follow something that Jesus tells you to do, then you need a far greater righteousness. And Jesus pushes back against both of these perspectives as he now begins to apply his teaching to our lives. And he starts to get into those private spaces. To show us what it looks like in your interior personal life to align your life with the character and the nature of God and live by the values of a different world and a different kingdom. And the first two areas of life he wants to talk about are anger and lust. We'll only cover anger today, but both are worth noting right up front. Why would he start here? You know, when he talks about anger in this passage, don't get Jesus wrong, there's times where it is righteous and good to be angry. When you go to the Kali Ghat in India, you should be angry. When you see injustice, you should be angry. Because God is angry, and it's in his character to be angry. But this is a different type of anger. So what type of anger is he talking about? Why would Jesus start with anger and lust? Well, man, like the fish that said, what's water? Jump online and tell me what you see. Do you not find anger and lust everywhere you look? It's in all those headlines that do everything they can to keep you enraged, coming back for more as though they have your best interest at heart. It's in all the ads and the pictures that are meant to draw your gaze and your imagination and fantasy. Don't you see all the anger and the rage posting in the comment sections online? Don't you know the social media algorithms out there designed to filter through the most salacious posts with the most salacious words and put them at the top of your feed to get you to engage? Why? So that you pad their profit margins. That's it. Welcome to this world. Anger and lust are trillion dollar industries built on the value systems of this world that dehumanize and destroy. And he starts there because what two other categories are the complete opposite and antithesis of the values of his kingdom? A kingdom of peace, justice, love, kindness, and mercy. So Jesus says in verse 21, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder for you will be liable to judgment. But I say, whoever is angry with his brother, whoever insults his brother will be liable for judgment. So right there, let's see what Jesus is doing. He's taking a really well-known law that every Jew knew. You shall not murder. It's a law that everybody thought they were keeping really well. I'm not a murderer. Check. And he's taking them further to see the deeper heart of the law. To so not just follow the rule, but to see that rule in light of the character of God. He's saying, sure, you haven't murdered anyone on the outside, but what's on the inside? Murder is playing God. It's determining the value of the life of another. It robs of life. It, it steals life. It destroys life. It's the ultimate form of dehumanization of another. And of course it's liable for judgment. In every culture that's ever existed. But Jesus is saying, be careful. Because your anger does all of those same exact things. And Jesus isn't equating these acts, okay? He's not saying that murder is no different of a different type of judgment than calling someone a fool, okay? We don't put people on the death, death row for insulting someone. He's not equating these acts, but he is saying that the heart that produces both of them is worthy of judgment. Sure, in your anger, you may not murder someone. But are you really displaying the character of your God? Or does that anger become toxic and poisonous? Does it become contagious and unravel things in your home? Doesn't it infect your heart and just spill over into other areas of life? It's just so hard to keep the top on it. It causes you to nurse grudges and rehearse telling that person off. It causes you to bring that person home with you and your thoughts, and they consume your attention. It makes others afraid to approach you. It crushes your reputation. It robs you of your relationships. It spews out harsh words. It gives you tunnel vision and narrows your life down to one simple thing that you just can't let go of, And it cuts, and it injures, and it wounds, and it dehumanizes. So Jesus is saying, Yeah, in your anger, you may not kill someone. But don't you see your anger is killing you? Your marriage, your friendships, your kids, your reputation. I may or may not struggle with anger. And one thing that may or may not get me in a real rager is stoplight algorithms. (laughs) Like, why does this light only let three cars through before turning red? You know, sure. I'd love to wait through 15 cycles just to grab my target pickup order. And a while back, my family and I were driving, Melissa and my two kids, Asher, who's seven, and Ava, who's four. And we come to a stoplight. And here we go. Once again, I got frustrated, and I started complaining to Melissa, because I know that she loves to hear it. So I'm like, I said, you, you know, do, do the people that set these algorithms actually live in this town? Like, does anybody drive on these roads and go through these stoplights? And I went on and on, just making one amazing point after the other. And finally, Melissa said, Sweetie, the kids can hear you. And I'm like, babe, come on, it's fine. They don't even understand what I'm talking about. So fast forward a few weeks... And we're all there driving once again, and we come to a stoplight, and we're just sitting there in silence. And then out of the backseat, I hear Asher. And he goes, oh, come on, this stoplight takes forever. (laughs) And here's the thing. I was right there with him. I was so blind to what was actually going on. I'm just sitting there. I look in the rearview mirror, and I'm like, buddy, I know. This is the worst stoplight And I look over at Melissa, and she's just looking back at me like, you sure you want to finish that sentence there, Dad of the Year? (laughs) My anger is contagious. It's poisonous. Teaching my son to fly off the handle when life inconveniences him. What a great strategy. What great theology for when you live in a world that's filled with chaos and broken things. My anger dehumanized him. It infected his little heart. And I hardly displayed the character of a patient, long-suffering God, and I showed a complete inability to not blow up at his stoplight. And so he is sitting there looking at a dad that blows up at a stoplight, so perhaps in the back of his mind he's wondering when dad is going to blow up at him. And here's the thing, I know some of you are thinking, ah, come on, don't be so hard on yourself. Or maybe you haven't actually heard the words of Jesus. And maybe you're trying to let yourself off the hook. And then a few weeks ago, I was driving to Tyler. I was on the interstate, and there was a lot of traffic. And I got behind a guy going about 60 miles an hour in the left lane, he might as well have been driving a covered wagon. (laughs) And in the right lane, there was just this long endless line of, of semis. So I couldn't pass them and it took forever. And I was actually thinking I was gonna be late and so did the guy behind me. So this big old trucks behind me, and he's just on my tail and he's swerving it kind of over into the shoulder to kind of make himself seen for the guy in front of me that there's people back here and we wanna, we wanna get we wanna get going. And he was obviously frustrated. And finally it got to where we, we moved up, and I could pass this guy into the right lane, and then the car, the truck behind me just closed that gap and just floored up and got on the tail of the covered wagon. And then he was honking and just having himself a rager. And then he got to where I kind of slowed down so this guy could pass. And so he, <laughs> he, gets, he gets in front of me, swerves in front, pulls up in front of this guy with his window down, and he is just blowing this guy up with language that I can only assume was as colorful as the rainbow. And then he floors it, swerves in front of this guy with his window down, and he tells this guy that he is number one. <laughs> and I thought to myself, man, I wonder what the rest of that, day's, that guy's day was like. That anger, that anger is not containable. That anger doesn't stay isolated. It spills over into everything else. Shows up to work in a bad mood, starts complaining about his customers or his coworkers, and he starts pouring out all of his gripes about his little pet peeves. The guy that everybody wants to be around. He gets home and he pours it out on his wife or maybe snaps at his kids. And the thing I thought about was like, man, I know that guy. I know that guy. But the thing is, I was actually fine. I was fine. I wasn't actually upset at all. I was just following this guy. Just driving right along. And the situation would have normally at least gotten a rise out of me, and I would have been annoyed at how inconsiderate this guy was for all of the other drivers, but not that day. That day I wasn't. I wasn't angry at all. You know why? I was driving to Tyler for Rachel Wheeler's funeral. And in that moment, the Beatitudes came alive. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It was my grief that day and that mourning and that sorrow of soul that gave perspective to life. And the whole drive there and the whole drive back, I wasn't thinking about how fast I was going. I was thinking about how I couldn't wait to get home to see my wife and my kids. And I got home and I hugged my wife. And I gave her one of those long kisses. I went and I grabbed my kids. I squeezed them. I scrunched up their face. I told them I was going to eat them for dinner like I always do. I couldn't get enough of them. It was the blessedness of grief in a poor spirit that protected my heart, that gave me eyes to see, that didn't poison my day, that gave me a taste of the life of God that could actually appreciate and treasure his blessings and his gifts. That could see how precious life was that drew me towards my family. It didn't push them away. It's the strange reality of Jesus' teaching how mourning and sorrow and hardship in this world are blessed because in them it allows us to experience the life of another world. So, what are you so angry about? What anger is in your heart that's triggered so quickly? What grudge do you hold? What rage do you carry? What resentment do you hold on to? Yeah, you haven't killed anybody. But don't you see how your anger is killing you? And Jesus invites you into a life that aligns itself with the full heart and character of God so that you might flourish and thrive. And our anger is something that must be recognized and dealt with in our lives. Why? Because Jesus says one of the hardest things to end this passage that he says in the entire Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift therefore before the altar and go First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Don't come to me. Go be reconciled, and then come to me. This is how seriously Jesus takes anger and the destruction that it causes. He says, don't come to worship if your anger has brought enmity between you and your brother. And you've done nothing to solve it. Don't come to worship if you haven't first sought reconciliation and peace. Why does he say that? Why does he take it so seriously? It's because he's teaching us what it means to have that deeper righteousness. To align our lives with the character of God. And all of the law being summed up in love God and love neighbor. Those two things go hand in hand. They're a package deal. So he's saying, don't treat your neighbor like trash and then come thinking God is going to accept your sacrifice. Don't hate them in your heart and then come and act like you're offering your heart to God. Don't come and worship and act like God is so important when you have no interest in living by his character. Don't come and pretend like his words are so important when you have no intention to follow them. Don't come and act like God is a big deal, but the way he tells you to live is not. God is saying, very simply, go and seek peace and be reconciled. But if you do not, then you will come to meet with me. And I will not be there to meet with you. Because perhaps this kingdom is not for you. You know, just think of all those comment sections that we see online. Where all that venom and anger gets poured out. And how epidemic it is. And then how many of those people just show up for worship on Sunday morning? Saying, God is good, like good old Christian folk. Imagine. What would happen if people actually took Jesus' words seriously? How empty our churches would actually be. If what we see on Rock Wally and our next door are any indication, then the churches in this town would be ghost towns. But let's bring it closer to home and take it one step further. Maybe you've been angry for a long time, holding a grudge or contempt or living with a short fuse. You just find yourself constantly angry and outraged, always frustrated either internally or externally, and you've just been so angry for so long. Then friend, I love you. But what do you think your relationship with God has been all this time? Sometimes grace hits hard. And Jesus says all of this because he loves us. But this is how he ends the teaching. It's how he ends his teaching on anger. He doesn't doesn't actually give us a way out. And he doesn't soften the blow for us. He just leaves us with a simple invitation. And so we'll all do the same. Do you really want to meet and know this God of peace? Then what are you going to do with all that anger? For the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess the anger in our hearts. Confess the anger in mine. And you teach us a way of life that is so hard. It's so hard to reconcile, to have the courage. It's so hard to give up that ground that we want to hold on to. It's so hard to admit we're wrong. It's so hard to feel like... It's just so hard to be Christian sometimes. And it's hard to follow after you. But you desire life and peace and joy. Help us to remember that your words are not to crush us it's to give us life but sometimes it doesn't feel that way so we ask that you would give us the grace to see the beauty of what it is you're saying help us to desire peace that surpasses understanding and help us see that you're telling us how to pursue it would you meet us at your table and give us journey or give us uh, and feed us and nourish us The journey of reconciliation ahead. We ask all this in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen.